Morning, church. Second Samuel 8 and 9 this morning. Noe, thanks for reading chapter 9 for us. We're working our way through David's life in First and Second Samuel. And this is a powerful chapter we have in front of us this morning. Some fulfillment of the promises that God made to David last week. And also a tremendous reminder of God's mercy and grace toward us as his people and his offer of grace to the world. So let me pray. Let's continue in worship this morning through the preaching of the word. God, we want to affirm this morning as your people that it's very good news that you take a stand against sin. You take a stand against sin in our own hearts, calling us to repentance and faith in Christ. And you take a stand against sin in the world, promising us and assuring us that one day we will live apart from the effects of sin in our hearts and around us in the world. This morning, we want to see Christ with clarity. We want to see him as our victorious king, and we want to see him as our merciful king. Because we're convinced of your word, and we long for your word to set the trajectory to set the perspective, to guide and direct us in every way. So Holy Spirit, would you come now, would you strengthen us through your word? Would you lift up Christ for us? We pray in his name, amen. How we view Jesus matters. It matters more than anything else in the world. You may tend to view Jesus as endlessly tolerant, as a moral man worthy of modeling your life after, but he really makes no moral demands of us. He accepts us without commanding. There's an opportunity to believe without the need to turn from sin. Or you may not view Jesus as endlessly tolerant. You may view Jesus as endlessly demanding. A man who lived a perfect life and expects perfection. Honestly, the thought of Jesus stirs up a little bit of fear in your heart. There's a nagging sense that you can never really please him. If we're not careful, we may let our background or our preferences or our culture shape our view of Jesus rather than God's revelation of him in the Bible. And in 2 Samuel chapters 8 and 9, we're given a picture of what God's king is like is like victorious over sin and merciful toward sinners. King David isn't King Jesus, but King David a thousand years before Jesus does helpfully foreshadow for us. David's picture of Jesus is cloudy. It anticipates what God's king will be like, but it is not the picture that we should behold. What we'll see this morning is God's king is decisively victorious over his enemies. David helps us to consider the strength of Jesus' convictions. He's a king who will stand against sin, sometimes even in ways that make us uncomfortable. But we will also see in David a king who shows astounding mercy. David helps us to anticipate King Jesus who will show undeserved and abundant mercy to his people. David's reign whispers to us of what Jesus' future reign will be like. It wasn't perfect, but David anticipated for us. Here's the main idea this morning. Remember 
Because of the king's mercy, you can be caught up in the king's victory. If you came here this morning tending toward a view of Jesus that's endlessly demanding, I hope you leave here marveling and astounded at the mercy of Christ towards sinners. Or if you came here this morning tending toward a view of Jesus that is endlessly tolerant, I hope you leave recognizing your sin and embracing Jesus who died for your sins and rose for your eternal life. Or if you came in here this morning delighting in Christ genuinely, but also discouraged over your own sin, I hope that you leave this morning confident, reminded that God throws our sins into the very heart of the sea, that He abundantly pardons. So we have just two main points this morning, chapter 8 and chapter 9, and each of those will have three subpoints. God's victorious King, 2 Samuel chapter 8. Now, the contents of chapter 8 don't seem to be chronological. They seem to be thematic. David is God's victorious king. The promises that God made last week in chapter 7, the narrator of 2 Samuel shows us God's near fulfillment of those promises or the beginning of the near fulfillment in chapter 8. He'll begin to provide God's people, David will, with a land where they can finally rest from their enemies, where they no longer need to be sojourners, where they can experience peace from their enemies. And David's victory is shown in three ways. First, God's victorious king defeats his enemies. This is verses 1 through 6, and then verses 13 through 14. There are four enemies, north, south, east, and west, that the narrator will give to us that show us how David is victorious over the enemies surrounding Israel. First, over the Philistines in the west. Look at verse 1 of 2 Samuel chapter 8. After this, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them, and David took Methlag Amma out of the hand of the Philistines. Now, the Philistines have been a pest to Israel for a long time. They're the most notorious enemy of Israel during the David-Solomon story, or the Saul-David story. Now, we don't know, no one really knows what this Methag Amma actually means. I've read a lot of commentaries. No one seems to know what this means. The best guess, and I actually don't know where it comes from, is that it's a mother city. So Gath, the city of the Philistines. But it doesn't really matter. Whatever this is, David took it. And David defeated and subdued the Philistines to the west of his people, Israel. And then the Moabites to the east in verse 2. David defeated Moab and he measured them with a line, making them lie down on the ground Two lines he measured to be put to death and one full line to be spared. And the Moabites became servants of David and brought tribute. The Moabites are actually closely related to the Israelites through Abraham's nephew Lot, who had a son named Moab. But though they're related, Moab has antagonized Israel for generations. For example, when Israel flees Egypt, running from Pharaoh, and they ask Moab, can we cross your land? The Moabites refuse them. And Moab continues to attack Israel throughout the time of the judges. And perhaps this explains David's treatment of them in verse 2. It seems to me we have two options to try to understand David's actions here. Option one is that David goes further than what God would have intended. We've seen already that not every action that David takes is a commendable one. And not everything David does wrong is confronted by God in the text as it happens. Sometimes the circumstances of what David does plays themselves out in the story. 
But option two is that David is being used by God as an instrument of God's judgment toward the Moabites. And honestly, it seems that chapter 8 is a bit of an endorsement of David's role as God's king. And so if option two is the reality, then judgment for Moab's sustained resistance to God's purposes is handled in the hands of David. David acts like the flood in Noah's generation. David is the instrument of God's judgment toward the Moabites in their generation for all the ways that they are resisting God's leadership uh, in the world. And whatever the case, a third of the Moabites are spared, two-thirds are killed, and David, they, the rest bring David tributes. And by the way, the Moabite Ruth would find herself squarely in Jesus' lineage. So you have the Philistines to the west, we have the Moabites to the east, and now the Zobites and the Syrians to the north. Look at verse 3 of 2 Samuel 8. David also defeated Hadad-Ezer, the son of Rahab, king of Zobah, as he went to restore his power at the river Euphrates. And David took from him 1,700 horsemen and 20,000 foot soldiers. And David hamstrung all the chariot horses, but left enough for 100 chariots. And when the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadad-Ezer, king of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 men of the Syrians. Then David put garrisons in Aram of Damascus. And the Syrians became servants to David and brought tribute. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. Zobah is a powerful Aramean kingdom well to the north of Israel. But King Hadad-Ezer's army is decisively struck down by David. And when the Syrians, just south of the Zobites, when they hear of David's victory, they send their army up to confront David. And David turns and strikes down 22,000 Syrian soldiers and puts garrisons of Israelite armies in Damascus. And so the Syrians themselves become servants of David and bring him tribute. So now the west, the east, and the north are all secured by David. And then if you jump down to verses 13 and 14, David confronts the Edomites in the south. David made a name for himself when he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. And then he put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom, he put garrisons. And all the Edomites became David's servants. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. Now, the map that you've been seeing shows the difference between David's kingdom at the start of his reign versus the end of his reign. And it's a massive difference. David has defeated ancient Israel's enemies from north, south, east, and west, firmly establishing his kingdom. But the narrator is quick to give God the credit for this victory. The Lord twice gave David victory wherever he went. God is responsible for the victory that David experiences. God is establishing a land in which his people can rest from their enemies. A people who had been sojourning and pilgriming, a people without a land now have a land and they have a king who is ensuring their peace. God in doing so demonstrates his power and authority over other nations. He establishes himself as the true king of all the earth. So God's king is victorious in the first place because he defeats his enemies. But there are two other things we see in chapter 8. We see also that God's king seeks God's glory, not his own. A righteous king understands that he serves to bring God glory and for the sake of his people. And David understands 
that that's his role. Look at verse 7. David took the shields of gold that were carried by the servants of Hadad-Ezer, and he brought them to Jerusalem. And from Betta and from Barathai, cities of Hadad-Ezer, King David took very much bronze. When Toy, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated the whole army of Hadad-Ezer, Toy sent his son Joram to King David to ask about his health and to bless him because he had fought against Hadad-Ezer and had defeated him, for Hadad-Ezer had often been at war with Toy. And Joram brought with him articles of silver, of gold, and of bronze. These also King David dedicated to the Lord, together with the silver and the gold that he dedicated from all the nations he subdued, from Edom to Moab, the Ammonites, the Philistines, Amalek, and from the spoil of Hadad-Ezer, the son of Rahab, king of Zobah. Rather than make himself wealthy, David dedicates all the precious metals he's taken and he's received to the Lord. David understands that the Lord has made these promises to him. He's moved from a shepherd to the prince of Israel, and he understands that God is the one who has done it. Chapter 7 started with a desire from David to build a temple to the Lord. I've got a palace. I've got a city. I long to build you a house for yourself. And God says, no, I'm going to build you a house instead. David knows that he exists for the sake of the Lord and for the sake of his people. And so he dedicates all these spoils of war to the Lord. And we'll find later that these seem to be used so that his son Solomon can build him, build God, that temple that David longed to build. God's king seeks God's glory. And then he reigns with justice and with equity or righteousness. This is verses 15 through 18. And there's another summary statement here. The first was, God is the one who's given David the victory. The second summary statement is in verse 15. So David reigned over all Israel. And David administered justice and equity or justice and righteousness to all his people. Here's a summary statement from the narrator of 2 Samuel. David, on the whole, did this. David reigned over all Israel, administering justice and equity to all his people. In Psalm 78, we read this. God chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds. From following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. And with an upright heart, David shepherded them and guided them with skillful hands. And by listing out the leaders in David's kingdom in verses 16 to 18, the narrator establishes Israel as a sophisticated nation. And over this nation is a king who, on the whole, uses his authority to serve his people. At the end of David's reign, he'll say to Solomon this in 2 Samuel 23, The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, that one dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. Good leadership that fears the Lord causes this to happen to those who are led. If we are leading like we fear the Lord, the people we lead should flourish under our leadership. Leadership at work and at home, at church, on the court, it should be marked by justice and righteousness. As leaders are guided and constrained by God's word, we lead other people according to God's heart. And it would be worth asking each one of us if those whom we lead 
would describe our leadership this way. Does our leadership, as we fear the Lord, cause those whom we are leading to flourish? Now, here's the connection between Israel and the church. Israel wandered as a sojourning nation, pilgrims with no land for generations. They were plagued by enemies. They were unwanted in the world around them. And then through the victorious King David, God provides his own people with a land where they can rest from their enemies. But that kingdom will only last two generations because by the time we get to David's grandchildren, the kingdom divides. And then a few hundred years later, Israel is exiled from the land that God had given them. And even when some of them return, like 50,000 return to the land, they're underneath foreign rule all the way up until the time Jesus comes to earth. And after Jesus suffered as our servant, and here's the connection, Jesus calls the church to live as strangers and sojourners and pilgrims and aliens in the world. He calls on us to remember that we have no city here. We wander. And as we wander, we proclaim hope to all the nations, calling on everyone everywhere to repent and to believe the gospel, to take up Jesus' cross, to assume the cost and to follow him. But we must remember, we who are pilgrims and sojourners waiting for that land to come, we must remember that our victorious King Jesus will return just as he promised. Here's Luke 17, where Jesus says, As the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. Quoting the term from Daniel. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Do you see it? Jesus is saying, at this coming, I must suffer. I must be rejected by my generation. But there will come a day when I will appear in the sky like lightning lights up the sky. And when Christ returns, the sojourning of his people will be over. Paul makes this same point famously in Philippians chapter 2 where he holds up Christ as one who suffered at his first coming. Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The suffering servant who would call his people to live as sojourners and pilgrims in the world. But even in Philippians 2, we see that Jesus will come again and he will be the victorious king. Verse 9, therefore, because of his humility, even humility unto death, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. To the north, to the south, to the east, and to the west, Jesus will be Lord of all. That's coming. He will be the victorious king. He who suffered in our place and calls us to follow him as pilgrims in this world. Jesus is the victorious king. The king that David's life and reign whispered about and foreshadowed. And as we saw last week, Jesus' reign will be an eternal one. He will reign on an eternal throne over an everlasting kingdom, ensuring endless peace 
for all who are wrapped up and caught up in his victory. So David's victorious reign that we read about in 2 Samuel 8 is both a point of history, it happened, and a point of prophecy. It will happen again with greater clarity and with greater joy. Now, I know how strange it is to live in this world. I feel it too. And every month it feels a little bit stranger. We feel like outsiders in the world around us, in the culture that we live in, but we also feel the angst of sin in our own hearts. We don't feel at home in ourselves. If we are caught up with Christ, we feel the transforming power of the gospel. We also feel this persistent struggle with sin. We don't feel at home even in our own hearts. But the strangeness we feel is by design. We who were once enemies have been called out from the world. And then we've been left in the world by Christ to make him known. Because our God loves to transform his enemies into his children. To turn rebels into family. Which the next chapter highlights. Jesus Christ is not merely, not only a victorious king, but he is a merciful king. And 2 Samuel 9 is a surprising illustration of God's mercy toward sinners. The one before whom all the earth will bow longs to show mercy. And David helps us to see that. In verses 1 through 4, we see David initiate the relationship. David said, Is there still anyone left in the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. And the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Emil, at Lo-Debar. David's desire to show mercy is the first domino that falls in this story. Is there anyone left from Saul's house? I want to show them kindness because of my faithful, loyal friend, Jonathan. Jonathan, you may remember, is King Saul's son, the crown prince of Israel. And David's servants find for him Ziba, a former servant of Saul, and Ziba tells him of Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth, who we met in chapter 4 when Saul and Jonathan are killed. And on that very same day, Mephibosheth's nurse scoops him up, knowing that his life is in danger, and she flees. But in her haste, she falls, and Mephibosheth's feet are injured. In verses 5 through 8, we see David call for this man. Look at verse 5. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Emil, at Lo-Debar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Why is Mephibosheth fearful when David calls for him? He's fearful because he expects David to do 
what any conquering king would do, which is to completely wipe out all the descendants of the prior king to secure his kingdom. Mephibosheth expects his death. He describes himself as a dead dog. He is expecting nothing else than to be killed by David so that David could further secure his throne. But instead of seeking him for that purpose, David calls on this man so that he might show kindness to him. The king will show kindness to Mephibosheth because of his father, Jonathan. And it was Jonathan that David made the promise in, Second Sam, or in 1 Samuel 20, verse 15, where Jonathan says to David, David, do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth, David, when the Lord does what he promised, and when he cuts off every enemy from before you, Promise me that you will not cut off my descendants, that you will not wipe out my house. Mephibosheth's response is one of disbelief. Who am I? What is your servant that you should show regard to me? I'm like a dead dog. According to every custom on the earth, I should be killed by you. Why would you do such a thing? But David not only spares Mephibosheth's life, he shows him abundant mercy. He goes well beyond the promise that he makes to Jonathan. David abundantly pardons Mephibosheth. Look at verse 9. Then the king called to Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may always have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servants, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all those who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both feet. This is astoundingly generous mercy. David goes far beyond what he needed to do, far beyond the promise. He takes all of King Saul's former property and he puts it back in the name of Mephibosheth. And then he takes... Saul's former servant Ziba, and he puts him in charge of all of Mephibosheth's land and produce. And then David takes Mephibosheth and he treats him not as a pardoned rebel. He doesn't send him back to King Saul's land. He doesn't send him out of his house. Instead, he makes and treats Mephibosheth as one of his own sons. Mephibosheth, grandson of Saul, you will eat at my table as one of my sons, for the rest of your life. To limit Jesus to a conquering victorious king is not to see him with total clarity. Jesus not only uses his strength to secure victory, he uses his strength to show mercy to his enemies. King Jesus will use his strength to defeat his enemies and every single one will fall before him. But he also pardons sinners, transforming them into his own by dying in their place. Jesus makes it possible to seat pardoned rebels at his own table, not reluctantly, but abundantly pardoning. 
He is a merciful king, redeeming us from the curse of the law so that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters. So how will you respond to the merciful king? The merciful king who says you need to be forgiven of your sin. The merciful king who stands against your sin on your behalf. Paul writes about this in Ephesians 2. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul writes to the Christian church in Ephesus and he says, we like all of mankind were under God's wrath because we were dead in trespasses and sins. Will you agree with Jesus that you are in need of mercy? that you are in need of his forgiveness. The victorious king will defeat every enemy that resists him, north, south, east, and west. Everyone who resists and rebels him will experience their defeat. He is not endlessly tolerant, but neither is he endlessly demanding. The merciful king Jesus initiates the relationship he keeps his promises. He abundantly pardons. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You are in Christ Jesus. You are caught up with him. You are included with him so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. There is a kingdom coming, a feast that's coming, and Jesus says you may participate through my work, my obedience, my death, my resurrection. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of your own doing, it's the gift of God. This is not reluctant grace. This is abundant, lavish, marvelous grace. So cry out with King David. In Psalm 51, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Seat me at the table. I long to be in your presence. Matt Smethurst is a pastor in Richmond and a great author, and he tweeted this week, the gospel changes heaven's courtroom. The gospel changes heaven's courtroom from a criminal trial to an adoption ceremony. The gospel changes heaven's courtroom from a criminal trial to an adoption ceremony. That's the grace and mercy of our victorious king. Now, of all people, of all people to request help from Jesus, the Roman centurion in Capernaum had some nerve. Can you imagine how the Jewish crowd would have been annoyed with this man? 
What audacity from this man. How could this representative of the invading Roman Empire dare to ask Jesus for a favor? Dare to ask Jesus to heal his servant? Most Jews were longing for the Messiah to overthrow Rome and to return Israel to the glory days they experienced under King David. Enough of the brutalizing, abusive presence of Rome. Rome who despised and diminished the Jewish people. And now this Roman centurion, this Roman officer was asking the miracle-working messianic figure to show mercy on his servant. Yet Jesus doesn't reject his request. Incredibly, Jesus offers to go to the man's house. But the centurion doesn't feel worthy of such a visit. And says in Matthew 8, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to another servant, do this, and he does it. The centurion's comments in Matthew 8 make a few things clear. First, he's a humble man who doesn't feel worthy of even Jesus' help. He sees something in Jesus that makes him feel unworthy, causing him to emotionally shrink back from Christ. But he also believes that Jesus has power. He believes Jesus has the power to heal, that Jesus has the authority to heal his servant who is ill, which propels the Roman centurion forward to take the risk. And what response does he find from Jesus? Verse 10, when Jesus heard this, he marveled. The only time that word is used in Matthew's gospel. Jesus marveled. And he said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Many will come from north, south, east, and west, and they will come into my kingdom and they will sit at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they will feast with the patriarchs. But then the warning. While the sons of the kingdom, that is, the Jewish people of his generation, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness, in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There's a few things that make Jesus' response interesting. First, oh, to have Jesus marvel at our dependence on him. Oh, to delight Jesus' heart by expressly depending on him. But notice also that Jesus draws a distinction. This non-Jewish Roman officer who is an enemy to God's people will recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What an honor that Jesus bestows on this centurion. And at the same time, Jesus says, Israelite men and women will be thrown into the outer darkness for rejecting him. Humble, dependent faith is what is needed, not the arrogant, scoffing disregard that comes from Jesus' contemporaries. And Jesus promises that those who reject him will be thrown into the outer darkness, far from the kingdom feast, far from the light of the Father's kingdom. Jesus stands against sin as the victorious king. 
He takes a stand against rebellion and sin. He does that. He is the victorious king. But his strength does not keep him from showing mercy to all who will come to him in faith. And so, to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Jesus' strength in this situation is deafening. He has healed the servant from afar the first time. This is recorded in Matthew's gospel. That's the extent of his power. But this Roman centurion also is caught up in the wind gusts of Jesus' victory. He is included in the wind tunnel of what Jesus is doing. Not only is his servant healed, but Jesus' enemy is invited to dine at Jesus' table in an everlasting kingdom feast. This foreign enemy, this Roman centurion is invited in because of his belief, because Jesus was able to marvel at his faith. Are you caught up with the king this morning? That's what God offers to us, to unite us in faith to Christ, united in a death like his, united in a resurrection like his. Like the Israelites are caught up in David's victory over the Philistine Goliath. David is the one who fights, and the Israelite army is caught up in his victory over Goliath and the Philistines. If you came here this morning tending to view Jesus as endlessly demanding, I hope you leave here marveling at the astounding mercy of Christ towards sinners. And if you came here this morning tending to view Jesus as endlessly tolerant, I hope you leave sobered by your own sin and recognizing it was Jesus alone who died for your sins and rose to give you life. And if you came here this morning delighting in Christ, but discouraged over your own sin, I hope you leave with a confident reminder that God has taken our sins in Christ and thrown them into the very depth of the sea, remembering them no more. Remember, because of the King's mercy, we can be caught up in the King's victory. Remember this from Ephesians 2.13. But now in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Lord Jesus, we worship you this morning. We are grateful for your victory over sin. There is hope for us of a life apart from sin. A life when sin is in the rearview mirror. A life when all is finished and we rest in you alone. And we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for calling us as your enemies, dead in our trespasses and sins, calling us to life through your own death and resurrection. We pray these things in your name. Amen.